0: Welcome to Kishwaki Bible Church. Let me invite you to be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Again, welcome if you're visiting with us. We're picking up today on a series that we started last week looking at the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, a series that we've entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. Last week we saw how Jesus changes beginnings, how in Jesus God rewrites the story, and that He rewrites our story as well. And this week, we're going to be looking particularly not just at how Jesus changes our beginnings, but how Jesus changes our callings, how Jesus changes our place in the story, our primary function under God, because if Jesus is who this book says he is, he's the hero, and we're not. But what place then is left for you and I? We'll find in our passage today that having changed our beginnings, Jesus changes our callings. Let me just say on the front end uh, that you'll notice that over the next couple weeks, um, some of the passages that we're going to be looking at are too large for us to read on the front end, and we'll be working through them as we go, so don't be concerned. We'll be working through them as we go, and some of them we'll even be selecting the most important parts. I'll overview some of the story and then hone in in a little bit. This is going to give us a unique perspective again on this gospel as we fly at a pretty high level, but it's going to allow us to see the connection between a lot of its moving parts. So don't be concerned. Today though, we're going to be picking up in John chapter 1 verses 19 to 51. John chapter 1 verses 19 to 51. If you want to turn there, we'll pick up the story in a minute, but first let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's too often that we're, we find ourselves caught in obsessing about our place in all this, our, our celebrity culture, our, our thirst for fame and fortune, only to find that in your story, there's not room for two at the top. That in your story, you've given that spot to Jesus. And my, my prayer today is that no matter how that struggle shows itself in our lives for each one of us individually, that no matter how that shows itself in our lives, my prayer is that seeing Jesus for who he is and taking John the Baptist today as our model, we would find contentment in not being Number one, that Jesus alone might be king, and all of us his servants. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Well, I want to begin today by telling you a story that I've told some of you in private, but it's high time that this is public knowledge. And it's the story of how I first met Catherine's family of the weekend that I first went out to meet them because Catherine and I had fallen in love over the summer. I would say that, I don't know if she was there, but I was there, we had fallen in love over the summer and we had gone back though to our, our separate universities. I was at a, uh, in Pennsylvania at a university, a, a college, Messiah College. Some of you will know the name. Catherine was at Ohio State in, in Columbus, Ohio. She was a, a, a commuter there. And Messiah had come up on its first fall break, its, its first long weekend, and it was prime time to head out to see this woman that I had fallen in love with, and, and then additionally to meet her family. The problem was that I didn't have a car. I didn't have any money, but I just happened to hear that a Messianic Jew who I had gotten to know was planning to go home for the weekend, and he conveniently lived in Cincinnati, which meant he was going to conveniently pass by Ohio State's main campus. So I hitched a ride with this Messianic Jew, It's a story in and of itself. You can imagine the the eight or so hours in the car. We listened twice through to the soundtrack to Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) Hipster ride with this Messianic Jew. Suffice it to say though, that about one o'clock in the morning, he dropped me off on the corner of the Ohio State main campus. The problem is, is that Ohio State at the time was the largest university in the country. And so the south end of the main campus was not the end I was supposed to be on. And so I picked up what I had, which consisted of a backpack and a pumpkin, because it was October and I was planning on carving this with Catherine later, I picked up what I had, this, this backpack and this pumpkin, and I started to walk the nearly five miles from the south end of campus to where I knew Catherine parked in the morning. I, I, she was a commuter again. I knew where she parked. This seemed like a good idea at the time. It was only a couple hours away. And so I, I proceeded to, to trek up the Ohio State campus. But to make matters worse, I ended up trucking trucking down the street that contained all the frat houses and the sororities. And it was Thursday night, party night at OSU. So you could picture me quite unshaven at the time walking down the street with a pumpkin toting my school sweatshirt that across the front of it had plastered messiah (laughs) now i could tell from the stairs that no one thought i was the real messiah but i think some of them were wondering what judgment i was planning on exacting on them with this pumpkin so I made my way down the street, and eventually, it all worked out. But for all of that, I have to say that that one instance does not summarize my life living with a Messiah complex, my life living with a Christ complex, my life living with a, a Savior complex. It is not just summarized in that well-timed stroll down that street with the frat houses and the sororities wearing my school sweatshirt. I think I am the hero. I, I, I think I am the Messiah in life. But I am not. And neither are you. Psychologists speak of a messiah complex as a state of mind in which an individual holds the belief that they are responsible for saving others. It's a a delusion of grandeur in which an individual is consumed with the need to be needed, with the need to be the messiah. But what do we do as those who who struggle with this Messiah complex, who struggle with this Savior complex, which is a problem we all have, this universal need to be needed, need to be wanted, need to be number one. What do we do when it becomes painfully obvious we cannot save ourselves, let alone save anyone else? What do we do this side of jesus showing up and showing us what we can never be today i want to look we're going to see through the character of john the baptist the part that's left for us to play and it's a bit like dr watson in sherlock holmes Sherlock is the consulting detective for Scotland Yard, whose powers of observation and logical deduction border on the insane. But Dr. Watson, while often cast as Sherlock's assistant, is in fact, more importantly, the one who tells Sherlock's story. If you've ever read a a Sherlock Holmes novel, you'll know this that it's always, almost always told from the perspective of Dr. Watson. And similarly, this side of Jesus, with him as the hero, the part in life that's left for us to play is as the storyteller. The only difference is it's not a story of Sherlock solving somebody else's problem. It's the story of Jesus solving our own. And as we look to John the Baptist, our own Dr. Watson, we'll, we'll see that to tell this story of Jesus right, we have to start first with an honest account of the problem. And then second, we have to move to proclaim the solution that we found in Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. It's as simple as that. To be the storyteller of Jesus means that you, you, you give a, an honest account of the problem we have. And then you move on to proclaim the solution that we found. So first, if we, the... If the part we have is to to tell the story of Jesus, we have to begin with the problem. And I, I want you to just think for a minute, how do you do that? How do you do that in today's world? How do you speak to people about a problem a lot of people don't think they have? How do you do that? Well, if you're anything like John the Baptist... You get their attention. That's what John does. You, you, you take something from culture, and you turn it on its head, and you expose it for what it is. And, and this is exactly what this man named John the Baptist, what this man does when he starts baptizing people. He, he takes this religious, this religious ritual of the day that had lost its richness, and he turns it on its head. Let me read where the story picks up in verse 19. We've, we've already heard of John twice in the passage we looked at last week, that he was a man sent from God as a, a witness to bear witness, to, to give testimony, to testify about Jesus. And now it says in verse 19, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? That's the one who was supposed to show up before the Christ. He said, I am not. Are you the the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now verse 24 says, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and we'll learn more about the Pharisees in a couple of weeks, but, but they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Why are you baptizing? And I want to just take a moment to explain why there was all this commotion amongst the religious leaders of that time around this rather eccentric individual who decided one day to go down to the river and start dunking people. And what John uh, was saying through it, what you need to understand is that this thing that we call baptism wasn't something that John came up with. He did it before Jesus, but he's not the one that came up with it. It was something he was stealing from those religious leaders. It was a ritual that they did and made sure others did over and over and over again before eating, before sleeping, after getting up in the morning, after going to the bathroom, after being part of a funeral, or whenever you went to worship God. And baptism was a statement for those religious leaders. Baptism was a statement that before God, we're unclean, and we need God to cleanse us. But this ritual, this ritual washing apparently led a lot of people to think that their only problem was being ritually clean. So a little water here, a little water there. And I'm good, I'm good. I took care of the problem. I did my ritual thing to take care of my ritual problem. Until all of a sudden, quite apart from the religious leaders of the time, this rather eccentric individual hijacks their ritual and starts making like it means something more. Like it's no longer it's no longer a statement that we're good that we did our thing and we're good but now it's not now it's rather an appeal to God because we're not good that the door was somehow unhinged that the crime was afoot and that there was something rotten in Denmark. So we could say with Macbeth, we can ask with Macbeth, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather stain from shore to shore and depth to depth the green water's red. So John starts baptizing not to take care of the problem, but to point the problem out. Because we need something more than ritual. Because what's wrong isn't a ritual thing. We need something more than water, even if that's what the water points to. You can, you can take a bath. That's great. It's really great. Tell our kids that. It's really great. You get clean on the outside, but that doesn't take care of what's wrong on the inside. We need something to clean. We need someone to clean us where the water can't reach. So that John says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I baptize with water, but that's pointing to something better. So if Jesus is the hero, and he's the one who's come to be that something better, to baptize with something better. The part that's left for us to play as his storytellers begins with pointing out the problem. For John the Baptist, he, he, he talks of us, he pictures us as being unclean, and that's, that's a picture worth diving into. It worked well for those who he was talking to, especially with their background in the Jewish faith. It made sense. For me, if I'm just talking to a neighbor or striking up a conversation, walking down the street with someone, I like to talk about this world being broken. You'll hear that a lot from me. It's a phrase I come back to a lot. Your marriage is broken. Your trust is broken. Your heart is broken. And you're part of the reason why and you can't fix it. Sort of how I get into the story. But either way, we've got to follow John in giving an honest account of the problem of pushing back on something in the culture, even with the language that we use, and then turning it on its head. Even this idea, though, of being unclean of needing to be washed, you'll find that this surfaces even today. American rapper Eminem, you know the name? It was a name that I heard driving the bus to school. American rapper Eminem just released his ninth uh, solo album, Much Hailed, his his reentry onto the American rap scene. And there's a song on it that already in its first month, marked today, it was re- released a month ago, has 58 million views on YouTube. And the song's entitled River. Listen to some of these lyrics. Ed Sheeran, he features um, on, the, on the track and sings the chorus. He says, I've been a liar, been a thief, been a lover, been a cheat. All my sins need holy water feel it washing over me well little one I don't want to admit something if all it's gonna cause is pain truth and lies right now are falling like rain so let the river run and then Eminem goes on in this song very explicitly, and I'm telling you that on the front end. This is not something I'm saying go out and listen to. This is not something I'm saying fill your mind with. But this is what our culture is singing about. Eminem goes on in this song very explicitly to tell of what was supposed to be a one-night stand. But what ultimately got a girl pregnant. And the song is written to his unborn child. To whom he sings, Bet I really would have loved your smile. Didn't really want to abort. But what's one more lie to tell our unborn child? I've been a liar, been a thief, been a lover, been a cheat. All my sins need holy water. Feel it washing over me. Well, little one, I'm sorry. I don't want to admit something if all it's going to cause is pain. Truth and lies right now are falling like rain. So let the river run. Somewhere deep down, we all have a need to be clean. And our place in this, as those who know Jesus, is first to give an honest account of the problem. To push our culture to see that holy water is not going to do the trick. But the problem that you feel is much worse than you're actually even making it out to be. So the part we play as Jesus' storytellers is first to point out the problem to give an honest account of the problem, and then second, to proclaim the solution that we found in Jesus. Look at verse 29. So says the next day he, he saw Jesus, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what this whole ritual thing was about. Our mutiny against God, our rebellion against God, our revolt against God. What the, what the Bible calls sin. And I don't even care so much what you call it today, as long as you admit the fact that we all do it and the fact that we all have it. But John says of Jesus, this is the one who takes it away. He's the solution. And in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I I pointed out the problem so I could finally point to the solution. Why? Because Jesus baptized us with something better. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And you know that's a unique thing? Like just before we read the rest of what John says, do you know that's a unique thing? There are plenty of times in the Bible that the Spirit descends and that the Spirit shows up and that the Spirit does His thing the people John was talking to would have known that, but the Spirit never remains. God empowers plenty of people, the Spirit of God, rushing on them to work in them or speak through them or accomplish some great thing by them. But the Spirit never remains. You could think of Moses or, or David or one of, I think, the most interesting cases, Saul, if you know the story, the last time the Spirit of God rushes on Saul, he prophesies, he, he joins the prophets, this, this king who had utterly failed in, in being a king, he joins the prophets, and then we're told this very interesting statement that then he too stripped off his clothes and lay naked all that day and that night. Like the Spirit of God just knocks him right back into Eden. Naked. So that's what the Spirit's about. It's about recreating, but the Spirit never remains until Jesus. Until Jesus. And, and that's the point. John says, I saw the Spirit descend and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We talked last week about how Jesus was the Word of God, spoken at creation, that that, that through Jesus, everything that was created was created, and even more, that through Him, all can be recreated again. But look at this. This is how He does it, with the Spirit that was hovering over the waters before God spoke anything at creation. Now according to John, hovering over the waters again, but this time at the baptism of Jesus. So John says in verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the the Son of God who, who takes the enemies of God and gives them the right to become the children of God. Because he baptizes, and they are born again into the family of God. Because he takes the brokenness they had with God, and mends it by the Spirit of God. This is Jesus. And this is our calling under Christ. That if he is who this book says he is, he's the hero. And I'm not. And you're not. And the part we're left to play is as those who tell his story. Beginning with an honest account of the problem and then proclaiming to this world, he's the solution. But more than just about the story we tell with our lips, let me just draw this out for a minute and tell you that this is meant to be a story we tell just as much with our lives. I love where this goes. I can't delve into the the details of the rest of the chapter. We're not going to delve into the details. But I want to point out a, a pattern that begins with John And it starts in verse 35. There it says, the the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And it says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. They were John's disciples. But in the end, they followed Jesus. And you can imagine if this had gone another direction. After all I've done for you, after all I've been through, the clothes I wear, the food I eat, if you know anything about John the Baptist, right? The times that I've been into that water. You could tell where this could have gone if it went in another direction. If for any moment, John forgot his place in the story. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, if we were just going to be honest, if it was just us sitting across a coffee table, I don't know where you want to go, Starbucks, seans it doesn't matter. But If it was just us, if we're honest with ourselves, we do precisely that all the time. Whether it's with our 13-year-old kid or our spouse of 30 years whether it's with the guy that we walked into the faith, or the gal that we walked up in it. Because even as those who are tasked with telling the story of our Savior, if we're honest with ourselves, we continue to struggle with a Savior complex. We continue to struggle with a Christ complex. We continue to struggle with a Messiah complex. We continue to struggle with the need to be needed. But if we go that direction, we risk undoing the very story we've been given to tell. And it makes you wonder whether we even know the story at all. I'm not saying we don't need each other. We do. I'm not not saying that we're not in this together. We are. I'm not saying that we're not part of a body. We are. I'm not even saying that in another sense, we're not called to do heroic things. Even Dr. Watson from time to time does heroic things. I'm just saying that when it comes to the top, if Jesus is the hero, there's not room for two. And the only part we have is to tell the story and point people to Jesus. I love how this just carries right on through to the end of the chapter. But it all starts with John. It all starts with John. It carries right on through. You you can see um, in verse 40 it says, one of the two, one of those two who had been a disciple of John who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, he first, probably first thing the, the next morning, this is sort of outlining the, the first week of Jesus' ministry, the next morning found his own brother Simon, said to him, we have found the Messiah, and I'm not it. Then in verse 43, though our translation is a little off. This is one place I would point to that our translation is, a, is just a little off and I could talk to you later about it if you want, if you're at all interested. But then in verse 43, it's Peter who goes and finds Philip, even though it's Jesus who's the one who finally says, follow me. And then in verse 45, Philip turns and finds Nathaniel, saying, we have found him of who." whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Each one reaching one. It's a phrase you're going to become familiar with in the days ahead. Each one reaching one. And when you're reached, you turn to reach another. Each one reaching one. Because they know they're not the Messiah. But it all starts... With John. And the picture you get is that John, for his part, and every disciple after him, was so enamored with Christ and so satisfied with Christ and so following Christ that when the ones he's pointing to Christ actually start following Christ too, instead of Him, John doesn't even notice it. Because when you're looking to Jesus, there's no peripheral vision. You can't see anything else. And that's my prayer for us. I've seen this gone awry, even in the church over the years. Time and time again. Taking responsibility for someone else. Taking spiritual responsibility for someone else. But then as the one who's doing it, ultimately derailing what you're doing because in the end, as much as you're telling them to follow Jesus, you want them to follow you. But this is my prayer for us as a church as we walk through this Gospel. That this would change our callings. That we would be so enamored with Christ and so following Christ that we would lose ourselves in the story of Christ. No longer needing to be the hero. That we would be a church, and I would just put it in two different ways, that we would be a church that is quick to confess. This has to do with that first part of pointing out an honest account of the problem that we would be a church that's quick to confess both to each other and to the world around us because part of being honest with the problem is admitting how we ourselves have fallen short and that's as important for our own hearts as it is for our witness it's dangerous to continually tell a story that's all about Jesus but that in our feigning perfection we make all about ourselves but it also makes for a lousy story. Because if we're telling it like it's about Jesus, but undermining that in the way we live, it doesn't come off very well. So I hope as a church that we would be quick to confess, quick to apologize to each other, quick to own our mistakes, our mess-ups, our faults and failures, And quick to admit where we've gone wrong, both before our brothers and sisters here and before the watching world out there. I think as Christians, sometimes we we put ourselves under the pressure that we're supposed to be perfect. That if we fail, all of a sudden, the world will walk away from Jesus. The idea, though, is that the world's already walking away from Jesus. And it's when we show that we're not perfect, and yet the story continues in Christ, that the world has something to turn back to. Let the river run. Let the holy water fall. But let it do so in Jesus. That we would be quick to confess. But that we'd also be a church that is quick to get out of the way. Because the more we make this about us, the more we take away from this being about Jesus. And the story is His from the beginning. Both to deal with the problem and to provide the solution. And may all the rest of us just be His storytellers. Because Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that woven into the very beginning of this story is the part that we're left to play. I thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist who had in maybe other people's eyes every right to take that top spot. He was first on the scene. He was the eccentric out in the wilderness. And yet I'm so grateful for his testimony that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed that Jesus is the Christ. I pray we would so be enamored, be so following Jesus, that we no longer have a peripheral vision for any other concern. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's k-i-s-h-bible.org.